0: Good morning. Um, today our scripture reading is from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus.
1: All right. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So um, this is our passage today. And so we have kind of a wide range of Christians in this room, I don't know if you realize that. If you spend time together in house churches, you'll quickly realize, wow, there's a lot of sort of different denominational people, sort of backgrounds, Christian backgrounds represented here in this room. Um, And I love that. That's what we want. Um, We're united by things like communion and uh, putting our differences aside and, and wrapping our arms around the idea of grace, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And then there's these other things like this. That we come to, and maybe you're like a traditionalist. Maybe you grow up, um, and 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 things like this come very natural to you. Hearing stories of things like the virgin birth, and you hear them, and you're just like, "Yes, I give it to me. I believe it." Um, but maybe you're not. Maybe you're more of a skeptic. Um, maybe you read things like this, and I know there's some of you here who and. And you come to passages like this and you say, well, obviously it's myth um, added in for like dramatic effect um, at a particular time when people did these kinds of things. Um, and maybe you're here and you're just like, never thought about it. I never, never really looked that deeply into it. I just, it's been there. It's just part of the story of Jesus and I kind of tell it. Um, so I'm glad you're all here. I'm going to disrupt all of you today. Um, equal opportunity disruption <laughs> for all. Um, because I want to speak to the traditionalists. I want to speak to the skeptics. I, um, I, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to give you a lot to think about. Um, and we should ponder these things, and we should dwell on these things. Um, because some of you have thrown things like this out, because you see it unnecessary in the modern age. And when you tell the story of Jesus, you feel a little embarrassed saying things like this. Um, and so you just kind of conveniently leave it out. Um, and I want to talk to you about that. Uh, because I think when we just throw things out, we lose really important things that really meant a lot of people, a lot of a lot of meaning to the original recipients of these letters. Um, and so today we're going to talk about the virgin birth. We're going to talk. Uh, we're, we're, what are we going to do? We're going to we're going to talk about some difficulties with this idea, um, difficulties that skeptics have with it, difficulties that uh, traditionalists have with it. Um, and we're going to talk about Jewish marriage, right? Because you got to. Um, and then we're going to talk about uh, some Jewish theology. Um, because that's really what we have here. And it's incredibly beautiful. So we're going to go there. So I'm going to, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to jump into this. Shall we? Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this weather, first off. It's, uh, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Um, we love trying to find things to scrape ice with. And uh, we worship you during that. And uh, we gather here today as your people in your name, and uh, um, we ask you to just give us something that maybe we've been missing, that we haven't seen. Um, inspire us, and, uh, and wake us up, and convict us, and change us. Um, if we've been arrogant and prideful, knock that down a bit. If we've, uh, if we've been lost in seeking, um, remind us of who you are, that you're present, that you're here, and you're drawing us in. Um, we love you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so um, I want to talk to the traditionalists first, because I get a lot of questions. People come to me and they say, especially around times like Christmas, by the way, um, I was like, let's leave the Christmas lights up, because we're still like, talking about Christmas stuff, right? So um, I get questions of people that come up and they say things like, you know, what do I need to believe to be like a Christian, like, a, like to be still considered a Christian? Like just the bare minimum, right? Um, and so, um, this is on the list. Usually people ask a question about this. They say, well, do I need to believe in that? Um, because I have all these reasons not to believe that namely like science and like it doesn't happen. Um, and so I have a hard time with this. How can I, as like a modern thinking person, be a follower of Christ and believe things like this? Um, and still live in this world in which I live in. Um, And there's some, honestly, when I answer this question, there is some difficulty because um, I'll give you some facts. Um, The only places this is mentioned in scriptures is Matthew and Luke. Um, Jesus actually never mentions it, the virgin birth. Paul never mentions the virgin birth. Um, And there's like really nothing else in scriptures about it other than these two passages. and so oftentimes that creates problems for people, especially for those who want to grab onto things like and say it's myth. Um, that's a lot of ammunition, right? That you can grab onto and look back and just say that's all it is. Um, and so I want to talk about this because I have a question back for you. If you're coming to me and you're saying things like, what, what's like the bare, what do I need to believe to be a Christian? What's the bare minimum? What's, give me the list. Because that's what we want, right? That's, that's who we are today. We're modernists. We want to take this massive library of 66 different books and compile it into like this short list so that we don't have to read the whole thing and do all the work, right? So we don't have to engage with the 4,800-year-old conversation about a Messiah and meaning and purpose in life and what is this all here for. We just want a short list. Um, I, I have a little bit of a problem with that. What are you looking for in the scriptures? I mean, I guess if you're looking for a bare minimum and you're going to make lists, then you're probably going to have to look to the teachings of Paul, which is interesting because Paul is where we get the vast majority of Christian doctrine, but Paul never mentions the virgin birth. Or you're going to look to Jesus and Jesus never mentions it. So there's a lot of Christians that argue that this isn't on the list um, and they like to throw it out. But the problem is when Christians get together and they they put together things like creeds, like Nicene creeds and apostles creeds, they're going to say, what should we believe? They put this in there. Um, If you've ever read the Nicene creed, clear as day, it's right in there. Conceived of the Virgin Mary. It's all there. Um, Why? Why is this so important? I would argue when you throw this out, you are throwing out something incredibly important. So we're going to talk about that. Um, For now, I'm going to kind of put that aside and we're going to pick it up in a few minutes. Um, There's some stuff I want to point out and and, and get past some stuff here in this passage that, that gives people a hard time as well, which has to do with perspective. I kind of want to show you that oftentimes what you are seeing when you read the New Testament is not really what's going on because you're here 2,000 years separated from this passage. So one of the first things we need to understand about this passage is that it is a Jewish piece of literature. And so in this, you're going to see uh, Jewish traditions. Um, And if you don't understand these things, then you're going to get very confused. For instance, if you look at verse 18, I've made a few uh, sort of emboldened words here to look at. So in verse 18, we have a phrase where it talks about how Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So she's betrothed. You know what betrothed means, hopefully. Um, and then verse 19, you see Joseph um, not wanting to, like, make a big deal out of this whole thing. That she's pregnant and it wasn't him. Um, and so he says, it says he resolved to divorce her quietly. So they're betrothed and he's going to divorce her. But then in verse 20, um, it says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So, like, you're betrothed, you're going to divorce her. And the angel's like, no, don't divorce her. Marry her. Like, but I... This is backwards. I've already, <laughs> how does this work? And so modern readers read this stuff and you're like, see, the author obviously has no idea what he's doing. Can't even write a coherent story. Actually, what we're seeing here is um, ancient procedures of Jewish marriage. Um, and you have to understand some of this. So let's talk about the ancient Jewish marriage proposals and procedures and how they went. First off, there was the engagement. This would happen when you're very young, um, very young like just above toddler age. Um, your parents would get together with some other parents and believe it or not, this is real. They actually had professional matchmakers in the first century, just, just like today, reality TV shows and everything. Um, and they would say, Hey, so I got the perfect match for you We're right over here. And they put little kids together and say, you guys are going to get married. And so like they would basically, these two young children, like seven, eight would get engaged to be married Ten years down the road. Um, actually, probably less because the age of marriage was right around the age of puberty. Puberty, the, the, the age that you were able to reproduce would be the age where, in their minds, you should obviously get married. Um, and so the engagement, following the engagements, when, when they both hit the right age to be married, uh, there would be what's called the betrothal, the ratification of engagements. Um, now, up until this point, you could call it off, either the man or the woman. Or the parents. Any of them could say, you know what? She stole my toy. I'm out. <laughs> and I'm out. Um, and, uh, and, and call this thing off. Um, but if you didn't, then you would head towards uh, the age of betrothal. So you would be betrothed to this other person. Um, when you were betrothed, there was no more backing out. And exactly one year later, um, you would be married properly. Um... And then all of the, um, all, all of the just rights and of, of marriage, you know, family, children, sex, living together, house, all of it um, would be yours together. Um, but until then, um, no touchy-touchy in the first century Jewish world, none of that, all right? Um, and so where we find the story is Mary and Joseph are between the age of betrothal and marriage proper. So there's one year, and they're in this year. And Joseph comes to find out that she's pregnant. This causes some problems. Um, And this is where sort of our story takes place. So now that we have a little bit of context, um, we know what's going on here. Um, I'm going to put that aside and we're going to come back to this. And I want to talk about the contemporaries of Jesus and how they viewed this. Because the fact is, they were not married. They were betrothed. And she gets pregnant And people tend to notice and talk, right? I mean, still today. Um, And these conversations and these rumors don't tend to go away easily. And they tend to carry on for a really long time. And in fact, um, when you look at uh, different parts of Scripture, you can see sort of the echo of the claim of Jesus' illegitimate birth in Scriptures. Um, So... This will be the part where the skeptics, I, I think the skeptics need to listen in a little bit. Um, I'm typically pretty skeptical of lots of things. Um, I read everything with a very skeptical eye. Um, in your sort of fashioning of your theology, especially if you're a skeptic, um, I, oftentimes you're tempted to throw things out which don't fit your, you know, exactly what you want things to be. This will be one of those things, and you have to sort of keep this as part of your thought process as you work through these doctrines, all right? Um, because first off, there is this passage in uh, in John 8, 4, where Jesus is talking to these um, sort of Jewish spiritual leaders, and he's arguing with them, and he's talking about them being children of Abraham. And there's one point where one of them sort of flings sort of a jab at him, like a, a a brutal burn, all right? He kind of says this. Oh, wait, no, back it up, sorry. I just shouldn't have done uh, Boom. Okay, so he looks at him and he says, it says, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So he's basically talking to them, and one of them responds and says, you know, we're not the ones with the mother that fooled around. Basically what they're saying. Um, attacking the legitimacy of Mary's motherhood, of Jesus, Um, and hurling an absolute insult at him. Um, And so we have an idea here that these rumors persist. They are there. And there are people who remember where Jesus came from, and they remember the story, and they tell these rumors, and they bring it up. To insult him. Also, so there's this fascinating thing. A little farther down the road, uh, you see in First Corinthians chapter nine, verse five, there is sort of this list of um, people in the early church gathering together, and they're doing ministry work together. And you see a little list, and you see this in verse five. It says, "And the other disciples and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas." So, Jesus had some little brothers, um, and they're apparently so members of Jesus' family are part of the early church. This raises some questions. Um, Were they aware of sort of this idea being thrown around of the virgin birth of Christ, of their own brother? Did they know about this, and did they believe it? Because I have older brothers, and I wouldn't believe it. Um, Yeah, you're special. Yeah, kind of thing. Um, And... And so you have to kind of ask this question, what did this family think about this? Did they know? Were they aware of this? Well, um, all signs point to the idea that this was something that was held to in the first century for the contemporaries of Christ, that this is something that they accepted and believed, mainly because as we look through church history, we know that the church fathers fought over everything. Like we have a long list of things the church fathers fought over. Um, And there is no recorded schism or dispute of the idea of the virgin birth being introduced. Therefore it most likely originated during the time of Jesus' family being part of the church. Um, because we have lists of debates of everything and not once, is there any writing um, or record of a conversation of people saying, I think, I, I'm beginning to think that Jesus was born of a virgin. was like, really? I was just thinking that. We should write it down. Um, that, there's none of that. There's no disputes, there's no doctrines, there's no writing at all, schisms, nothing. Nobody argues this. It's just something that they just kind of like always wrote down and kind of believed. So however skeptical you are, if you're the kind of person that just says, well, none of Jesus' contemporaries really believed this, we added this in later, they didn't really believe this, it kind of looks like they did. However that looks, it looks like the original church just accepted it and didn't question it, and didn't write against it, and never argued it. Like, this is one of the few things that we never see arguments about. Um, Which is confusing, because only two of the Gospels mention it. It's kind of a, to us, it's a huge deal. Why would only two of the Gospels mention it? That's what I want to talk about now. Um, To us, it is such a big deal that a sentence like this, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, this sentence is basically saying, before they had sex, she got pregnant with the Holy Spirit. And, and we look at it, we say, no, 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 no. We have a lot of problems with this, but it seems like the early church had no problem with this at all. There's actually reasons for this. Um, in order to understand this, you need to get into the mind of the first century person. Um, so uh, let me annotate this, this passage here. <laughs> so modern readers tend to focus on this part, the very beginning here. Um, Before they came together. Why? Because we are children of the Enlightenment. I say this a lot, but it's really important to understand that we are a a product of a culture entrenched in science and logic, question everything, skepticism, find out exactly what the truth is, what exactly happened, and hold on to that. That tends to be who we are. Um, Ancient readers, especially first century Jewish readers, never seem to have a problem with this with the virgin birth at all. They never questioned it. They never had a problem with it. And you have to ask yourself, why? Um, well, first off, um, they existed 1,200 years before science was invented. 1,200 years. They had a completely different way of looking at the world around them. And you know what else? Believe it or not, they were very accustomed to virgin birth stories. There were many of them. Um, and as a matter of fact, this is one of the, this is one of the things that that a lot of skeptics use um, to attack the legitimacy of Christianity. They say, well, there's lots of other virgin birth stories. Like, we know this. We've always known this. Um, even Buddha has one. Like, we know. Um, you know why? Because this was written at a time long before um, we knew anything about biology. We don't write virgin birth stories anymore. Um, people. People can't use that as an excuse anymore. You know what I mean? Um, (laughs) No. Whereas they were less... It was a time when stuff was accepted. Miraculous things were just kind of accepted. I'm not talking about whether or not it actually happened. I'm talking about the acceptance of it. The reason it's just not ubiquitously talked about like it is now. We come to the passage and we look here and we say, "That's, that's what we're focusing on. That's impossible. But the ancient Jewish reader, they didn't seem to have a problem with it. And they moved right along. Some of them didn't even write about it. They just, um, in fact, here's what they focused on. And it's fascinating because they had this completely different working view of the Holy Spirit. Um, And so the groundbreaking thing for us is the beginning of it. The groundbreaking thing for the original audience, who this book was written to, and that's the mindset you need to get into. The groundbreaking thing for the original audience was this line right here. Was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Let me talk to you about why. Um, most of you in here, in this room, I'm assuming, are followers of Jesus. You're Christians, and, and you were sort of born into this working theology of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, you know, the Holy Spirit it has roles and and um, guides the church, and um, and so you have this working theology. It's a Christian theology, a specifically Christian theology um, that was developed honestly much later than the scriptures. I mean, the first time we read about. The doctrine of the Trinity and and the place of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity is is like Tertullian, like 250 years later. Um, And so we have plenty of time now to work all this out and figure out exactly sort of the ins and outs of like soteriology and all of this. Um, Big words. Um, and, And so what you need to do is read this book and you need to understand Joseph was not a Christian. Joseph has an angel. Come to him and say, hey. Your wife's pregnant. Don't freak out. But she's conceived of the Holy Spirit. Um, Pretty quickly, he seems to get over the virgin birth thing. Um, The Holy Spirit thing would have been absolutely mind-blowing and groundbreaking to a first-century Jew. And so I want to talk about this. Because in order to understand fully what we should understand about the virgin birth story, to understand what what we are doing when we sort of throw these stories away, and we dismiss them as myth or whatever, um, we are missing a massively important piece of the puzzle as it pertains to the mind of the original listener. So we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, and I took the liberty of hand-drawing these ones. Um, So first off, the Holy Spirit uh, in the Old Testament, the theology of the the Jews regarding the Holy Spirit was vastly different than ours. Um, The Holy Spirit um, in the Old Testament... It is believed that that the Holy Spirit is the one that brought God's truth to women and men, to humanity. So, here's what this looks like. Whenever you see, it's not a joker hat, it's a a crown. I'm just not good at drawing it. Um, Whenever you see a king um, having to make this decision that is like a huge deal. um, Whenever you see a prophet standing up and proclaiming, the direction God wants us to go, what God wants us to do, how God wants us to respond, or how we are to worship God. Whenever you see a judge stand up and make a righteous judgment call about what is right and what is wrong, you will almost always see a reference to the Holy Spirit coming upon this person. Because it was the Holy Spirit in Jewish theology that goes from God and comes to the person and delivers the message um, sort of comes over... You'll see this regularly. comes over the person and delivers the message of sort of sometimes, sometimes morality, sometimes just um, spiritual truth, sometimes wisdom. And so you actually see these places where you have King David and he gets caught um, in murder and adultery. And he gets called out by one of the prophets who the Spirit came up with the prophet and revealed to him what David had done. So there's this wisdom there and foreknowledge there. And then David gets down on his hands and knees and writes one of the Psalms and says, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And you think about that, and you're like, well, that doesn't really fit our Christian doctrine because we believe one saved the And so we have all this Christian theology. The Jewish theology was, um, if the Holy Spirit leaves me, I can't effectively govern because I get my wisdom from God. So, when Matthew writes... Jesus was conceived not of man, but of the Holy Spirit. Um, What Joseph and the original listeners are hearing is so, all of the wisdom that we used to get from kings and prophets and the judges and the leaders of our theocracy, all of the leaders that used to have this divine wisdom and dish it out to us, that is no longer how we will hear the wisdom of God. We will now hear it from this baby. Was coming into the world. That's a big deal. If you're going to throw out the virgin birth, you're, you're going to lose that. Um, in the mind of the first century, dude, this was a huge deal. Secondly, um, one of the things that they believed about the Holy Spirit was the Holy Spirit was the presence of God. So sometimes you have the Holy Spirit coming in the form of like fire, a pillar of fire. And then you have clouds. And you, there's this one passage in Deuteronomy where they're finishing and the, completing the building of the temple and a cloud moves in. The Holy Spirit moves in like a cloud and fills the temple and people are like dropping tools and running for their lives because they're terrified because God is like moving into his house. They just finished building for him. He's like, moving day, moving in. Um, and then there's this Ark of the Covenant that he's kept in, right? And what happens if you touch the Ark of the Covenant? It's over. Um, you're dead. Um, and... And so this is actually kind of a cultural thing too because there was lots of other armies that carried their arks of their God into battle as well. And so they did this. Um, and so sometimes there's a burning bush. Um, there's all these different ways that God has sort of portrayed. It's always the spirit of God appearing to them in some way. So when Matthew writes and says, and Jesus was born not of a man but conceived of the Holy Spirit, Joseph and the original readers of this book, the Jewish readers, and remember, Matthew and Luke have Jewish audiences. The other two do not have Jewish audiences. That's kind of an important point. There's no reason to talk to them about virgin birth because the whole point of talking about the virgin birth um, was to talk about the Holy Spirit conceiving and they wouldn't have cared. Because again, they would have believed about virgin birth, the the audiences of, of Mark and John. They would have believed in virgin birth because there's tons of these stories around. Um, And if you talk to them and say, but it was conceived of the Holy Spirit, they'd be like, I don't know what that is. Um, But the Jews did. So you have Matthew and you have Luke. Um, And so when you tell an ancient first century Jewish audience, this child is not conceived of man, but conceived of the Holy Spirit. What they're hearing is, oh, so the presence of God is no longer in the temple. Now the presence of God is here in the flesh in this person. Joining us, And then you get to the New Testament and you see the forming of the church. And what is the church called? The body of Christ. And so first off, if you wanted to be near God, in the first, and, and, and at one point Jesus even says, um, if, you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like I'm, here it is. And so we gather as the scriptures talk about how we gather as the presence and the body of Christ. And so when we come together, um, we know That the divine is right now at this moment as we are gathered together here with us. And so, if there's something you need from God, you speak it here. And the body of Christ will work towards your healing and meeting your needs and your salvation and all of it. This is what we do as the body of Christ. Um, So, in this room right now, the presence of God, scattered all throughout Tampa. And the world, Christians gathered together as the body of Christ. Um, and, then, and then you have one, another idea of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, some of it's hidden behind a drum set, but if you're in the back, you can see my terrible drawings. Um, you, have sort of, you, you have this idea that whenever creation is happening, it's the Holy Spirit doing it in the Old Testament. So you have uh, Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. The whole idea, I've talked about this a bunch. The whole idea, to make it short, is there's chaos The word there is chaos, and God is making order. And so you're going to sort of spread the waters, and you're going to make land a place in which God can live and dwell with mankind and order his creation to grow. And so this is the work of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit does. And then you have some fascinating things. Um, If if I were to ask you, so who do you think the first person in Scriptures to have the Spirit of God come over them was, who would you say? Um, And most of us would say something like, well, I mean... In our day, we think like the most important people are like the theologians, right? And like the teachers and like the, like, the ministry leaders and like the pastors and stuff. And, and so we would assume that the Spirit of God would first, if he's going to come over anybody, he's going to come over somebody who can communicate and write down theology and doctrine because doctrine is super, super important. But the thing is, when you read the Scriptures, the first person that the, that the Holy Spirit of God comes over is this, guy, this obscure guy named Bezalel. Let me read you a little bit about this guy. It says this, um... See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, the son of Uri, and has filled him with the Spirit of God. This is the first time this has ever happened. With skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. To make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze. To cut and set stones. To work in wood and to engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. He has given both him and Aholiab. If you're trying to figure out, what do we name our baby? Aholiab. Um, the ability to teach others, and he has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiderers in blue and purple, scarlet, and scarlet yarn, very specific, um, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them master craftsmen and designers. The first people that God comes, the Holy Spirit of God comes upon is artists, who apparently are into embroidery. (laughs) It's a lost but holy art from on high. Um, and so the spirit of God in the ancient first century Jewish mind um, is the inspiration of creativity. Uh, that's how we respond to the work of God. We, all through scriptures, we're going to write poetry and songs. We're going to dance. Um, we're going to play music. Um, it's going to be awesome because we're going to create something beautiful. And so Matthew writes and says, Jesus conceived not of man, but of the Holy Spirit. Oh, we're going to build something new. We're going to create something that's never been done. This is going to be different. We're going to take the pieces, the fragments of what was like Bezalel building the temple. And we're going to make something out of all of this. And so maybe you like, you ever get that feeling when you finish mowing the lawn and you look back, you're like, man, that looks good. And I feel good. Of course you do. You just did holy work. How many of you, you just, you like to build something. You like to go to work. You like to order something. Some of you are like numbers people and you're like, I like a nice organized spreadsheet. I do. Of course you do. It's, it's like one of the things that, that God has instilled in us with his spirit is, is the desire to order this world and move it towards embetterment It is It's something that's sorely forgotten in in churches today. We tend to just think, no, we're just supposed to know a bunch of things and and get all our beliefs right and just hang out and wait for whatever. Rapture apocalypse. Who knows? It's all, we can debate that. But no, God wants us to work, to stay busy, to order, to create, to grow, to progress, all of it. And so, yes, Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit. That's a huge deal. We're about to do something new, right? And then um, another one is, is that the, the people, the ancient first century Jewish people, their, their theology of the Holy Spirit included um, the idea of new life, oftentimes from dead things. And so you have these passages like Ezekiel, where God takes them up to a hill and looks out over a valley, and it's just filled with dry bones. It's a, it's a crazy story. All these dry bones everywhere. Um, some kind of animal graveyard. I just think Lion King. Um, <laughs> And, and then it, it talks about the Holy Spirit breathed life and the bones came to life. And um, this is incredibly meaningful and beautiful. And, and there's tons of stories in, in, in the Old Testament of the Spirit of God bringing life into these things. You, you read uh, Genesis, the, the Genesis story of the Spirit of God there during creation. And then you have a phrase like, and God takes the dust and forms Adam out of dust and breathes life into him. This is fascinating. So I wrote the word breath for, uh, for Hebrew and for Greek here. Um, in Hebrew, it's, it's pronounced ruach. Um, in the Greek, it's pneuma. Um, these words have two meanings. It means spirit. It also means breath. Um, I had a literature teacher this morning, actually, after the first service, remind me that uh, and, and, and tell me that... Um, that it's not just these two languages. Um, there's Latin. Um, he named like four other languages where the word breath and the word spirit are like the same word. And so a first century Jewish reader of the scriptures, the book of Genesis, is reading the creation of Adam and God breathing what, what we're seeing is like spirit bringing to life Adam. And we see this over and over. There's this, um, there's this passage in the book of Job. Um, uh, Job 33, six that says, oh, I'm sorry. Um, so I wrote it down here. Give me a second. I didn't write down which passage, but it's in Job. And, uh, it says the spirit of God has made me the breath of God, the almighty gives me life. Uh, we translate it spirit and then breath, but it's actually Ruach. It's the same word and you can interchange it. So you can actually read it backwards as well. The breath of God has made me and the spirit of the almighty gives me life. Um, this is really important to the original understanding. In, in, in Psalm 33, 6, you have, um, it talks about how the, uh, the, there's sort of another creation story, and it talks about all their hosts uh, were created by the breath of his mouth. And so you, whenever the word breath, whenever something is brought to life, there is a breathing, and it's the word for spirit. Um, and so Matthew, when he writes about Jesus being conceived not of man, but of the spirit of God that's going to instantly bring to mind to the first century Jewish reader some very important things about dead things being brought to life and he's priming them because a little later on in the story Jesus is going to die and when he comes back to life three days later they're going to say well of course it makes perfect sense that's what the spirit of God does if Jesus is from the spirit of God then it makes perfect sense so look there's, and there's tons more you could spend a lot of time. I could make lots of terrible drawings about what Spirit of God represented to the Jewish people. I just chose these ones. Um, so you're a skeptic. And when you tell the story of Jesus, you don't mention the virgin birth, right? It's a little embarrassing. It doesn't scientifically make sense. They're all going to laugh at you. And uh, you, you just kind of ignore it. I want you to know, when you throw it out, You're throwing out a lot. I happen to be the kind of person that thinks that just the simple literal interpretation of everything is the lowest form of interpretation. I want to see how deep this thing goes, how wide it goes, how far we can take it, how many people can be impacted by the story. So if you ask me, do you believe in the virgin birth? Man, yes. When I tell this story about Jesus... I'm going to mention the virgin birth, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by man, because this brings a whole new element into it, because it, all, it, it means many things. To me, it means um, when, when I want to know wisdom from God, when I want to know what, what real righteous life looks like, I can look to Jesus. And when, when I want to know what the right response is to God, like, what's the point in Creation, Ordering things. Where's this all headed? Um, It's the right response. When I want to know, where is God? I I need to connect with God. What am I going to do? Am I just going to go out into a field somewhere and ask God to show? No, you know, I'm going to gather. I'm going to gather with the body of Christ. Because here I'm in the presence of God. In this room, Jesus is here. And he's in your hands and feet. And, and the words that you speak and your ability to see the needs of each other and the world around us and to meet them. We are the body of Christ gathered together. God is here. And I'm going to find God in Jesus. And when I come together, I'm going to find God here. Um, and then when, when things are broken and, and I, need, I need to find some way, I, when I'm losing hope, I don't think this thing can be fixed. This relationship is going downhill. This thing is, this is too far gone, whatever. I can't resurrect this thing. It's, it's dead it's three days in the ground. It's rotting. It's stinking flesh. There's nothing I can do. Um, the message of Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit and not just of plain old Joseph is that, no, this thing can be fixed because that's who Jesus is. Where it comes from, what's possible of doing. And so, yeah. Um, are there times when, when, when I doubt, when you doubt? Yeah, of course. Is it really hard to hold on? Yes, Christianity is absurd. Let's admit it. It's it's hard to contemplate these things. But the fact is, when you throw these things out, um, you are missing the purpose and the life and the meaning, the, the spiritual depth behind it all. And so every day I wake up and I choose to believe that Jesus is the way to bring about healing in the world. I choose to believe that Jesus is the path that, that, whose path I should follow. I choose to believe that Jesus is not just some person born just like everyone else, that he was sent by the Holy Spirit. I choose to believe in the resurrection and every day I choose to believe this again and again and again. And every day God kind of pushes me down this path. And some days it's exhilarating and I, and I feel the presence of God there. And some days I'm just kind of left wondering, but that's life. And so yes, when I tell the story of Jesus, I'm going to tell the story of, of immaculate conception, whatever you want to call it. Because it means so much. There's so much there that I'm not willing to throw out. And so wherever you're at, um, maybe you find these things just very easy to grab onto. That's awesome. Hold on to them. Proclaim them from the rooftops. There are people who need to hear that. Maybe you're a skeptic and you're really good at just taking things apart and, uh, until there's nothing left. Um, when you're taking things apart, think about the weight of them and the divine meaning of all of it as well. Um, I want you to contemplate the fact that the contemporaries of Christ held to this and believed this. I want you to think about the fact that it was written for a specific reason to give you something that God is saying, don't throw this out. Don't throw it out. All right? Um, So we're going to take communion. Communion. uh, Our communion servers, you guys can gather the elements and spread around the room. Communion is an important thing because in communion, um, we take some simple things. This is a great... Um, exercise for all types of Christians because in communion we take bread and we take wine and and we see the meaning in the broken bread and the spilt uh, blood of Christ. Because the bread symbolizes the body of Christ um, broken for you, the wine symbolizes the blood of Christ spilled for you, and we approach these things and it's just bread and it's just wine, and we've had these things throughout the week and they've been totally normal. In this moment, in this moment, we choose to see the divine in the very common. And it's an exercise in seeing the divine in the common. And it's something you're not just supposed to do here at this table, but you are supposed to take with you into your life. And so when you feel love from your children or your spouse you see Christ in that common and, and, and you open yourself up and allow yourself to be poured out for them. When somebody asks something of you that is difficult to give, you choose to see Christ in the common and you allow yourself to be broken and poured out for them, for their healing. We believe that this is how salvation is brought into this world. We believe this is how things are made whole. The broken body of Christ the spilled blood of Christ. So, uh, uh, community servers, you guys can um, go ahead and step into the aisles. Um, whatever you bring to the table whatever you struggle with, um, whatever identity you are trying to shake off, whatever pain you have been through, whatever loss you've experienced, whatever righteousness you have, whatever goodness you carry, when you come to the table, we all receive the same thing. Body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ built for you. And grace. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Grow us, change us. Um. Give us the food we need when we need it. Um, Encourage us. Give us hope. Make us stronger. Make us more uh, righteous. Give us lives that are more humble, but able to do greater and greater things every day. We love you. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.